Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mind Your Work Unscripted, a series for candid discussions with less preparation and more conversation. I'm Jose Espinoza, and I'm here with my co-host, Nicholas Bremner. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. <laughs> Are you like the rotating guest chair? I was like, you know, when they bring a guest on somewhere, they always call, yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You've never been here before. <laughs> yeah. It's an honor to be on the show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's an honor. I'm a big fan. I'm a fan. So today, we are going to be talking about essential services. Um, again, uh, if you listen to our other episode on universal basic income and on COVID-19 and basic psychological needs, everything's kind of circled around a theme. Basically, these are all things that have been top of mind for us. We've had many discussions here and there. Nick and I tend to share links and articles back and forth, uh, even when we're not working on the podcast. So this is something that came up. We wanted to talk a little bit about the change that I think we've both been experiencing, in, both in terms of our viewpoints and I think in, in general, in, in, in the public opinion as to what is an essential service and, and what isn't. How do we define an essential service? How was an essential service defined before COVID hit? Let's start with that. That's a great point. The way that I would think about it is here are the occupations that can't go on strike. You know, they tend to be the occupations that the government will say, actually, you cannot stop doing what you're doing because you're like essential to society. And there are very few of those, like really, really very few of those. Do we have some examples? Uh, police are a typical example of that. Okay. Some health services. Yeah. Educators, right? To a certain extent, educators as well. They can go on strike. Teachers will go on strike, but there is basically a hard limit that the government can put on that stuff, at least in Canada. Uh-huh. So, so I think there are very few of those and they tend to be those kinds of things. They tend to be kind of what I think of as almost as like civic services. Right. Things that basically are supposed to help our society function, right? Like the structure of our society run mostly from a governmental level, right? Yeah. And so the, the reason why we're talking about this today is with COVID, I think what we're seeing as what's defined as, as an essential service is changing somewhat. And not changing, but maybe expanding specifically. So we're finding that certain occupations like food delivery, like cleaners, sanitation, custodial work, um, they're essential, especially as, you know, people are unable to leave their homes in some cases um, for non-essential reasons. And everyone is very worried about, or many people are very worried about um, the cleanliness of our public spaces, of office buildings, of restaurants, of you know places that were are starting to open up in different countries at different rates around the world, cleanliness is front and center. That's that's one that I, that readily comes to mind for me. There there are others, but what's I think interesting here and merits some discussion is that some of these services that are now deemed essential are not services that were put in high regard or held in high regard previously. Um, custodial work is a good example of that. Yeah, We have individuals who are putting themselves in harm's way, often with very poor working conditions for very low wages, and now society is deeming them essential. And this is a difficult situation. It's wholly unfair, first of all. Um, what do you what do you think about the situation specifically in, in relation to, to custodial work? Yeah, I think it's I think custodial work is a great example of what Originally, when everything shut down and there were people who obviously could not stay home, who has to who had to continue doing their jobs, the essential worker was the healthcare worker. Yeah. Right. But really, the depiction of that was doctors, nurses, that sort of thing. Included among that group are people who do who do custodial work in in healthcare services, right? And I think as as time went on and things got more complicated, it became even clearer to us that custodial work in general and what was essentially the essential worker was the frontline worker, as in the worker who was there first to to have to put themselves at risk. Yeah. 
And something that's shared, I think, by a lot of those jobs is that they're the people who have jobs that have been systematically devalued over time, right? There's been a race to the bottom for all those jobs, mm-hmm. right? Well, you can imagine for something like being a doctor, right? Over time, we have valued these occupations more and more. Yeah. Custodial work, grocery workers, delivery workers. There's basically been a race to the bottom. It's worked the other way where we have left these jobs to the people who basically have no other options, who either have no other qualifications in quotation marks, you know, that that mm-hmm. society approves us to do some of these other jobs who don't have the experience, people who are potentially immigrants or, or, or in situations where they're vulnerable, where they have situations that won't allow them to do their jobs for whatever reason. It's become a really hard thing, I think, to confront, realizing that much of society relies on these people that have so been devalued both in terms of what they contribute to society, both, you know, from a significance perspective, as well as what we've actually devalued them in terms of what we're paying them. And that begs the question, why do people do these jobs that are, you know, difficult, they don't pay well? The the obvious answer is out of necessity, right? And then I, I can't help but refer back to the episode we recently did on universal basic income with the point of right. you know, if you if you give individuals enough of a stipend to get by and support their families at a very basic level, are people going to select into these occupations anymore? Unless we elevate those occupations like custodial work pay people more, improve the working conditions, make them like humanize these jobs. Like frankly speaking, they're they need to be humanized yeah. because there's such a strong inequality and and um there's a, a New York Times article that we we both read. The the trend in in sanitation industries has been to to reduce the cost of labor and to cut corners and and clean office buildings less and less and just do the bare minimum. And now with, with, with COVID hitting and you know, the pandemic being top of mind for everyone, um, having sanitary places is absolutely paramount. And you need to like, double check and be extremely thorough with this. But the people who are doing the, the work, the very, very hard and dangerous work to sanitize these, these places are still under poor conditions. These, these companies are still cutting costs. They're still not providing people with enough equipment. And I think there are exceptions to that. I think the, the article also mentioned that sometimes... Um, like COVID cleaning is like a put it put on a pedestal is like a premium. It's a premium service you offer, and that's that's kind of a marketing thing rather than like valuing the occupation. I don't think that we should have to rely to marketing, right? Rely on marketing to to support these occupations. I think they. I wish I knew the answer to this, but these occupations need to be elevated. And, and the amazing thing about that article too, one thing to sit out was that many of the people doing this custodial work, when they were faced with shortages of supplies, shortages of training. They were doing this themselves. They were bringing actual cleaning supplies from home. They were going out of their way to learn more about what they were supposed to be doing right. to keep themselves safe and actually clean the places that they're supposed to be. They were complaining to people, uh, you know, their higher ups about like, hey, we're not given enough time to do this job. Obviously, if it's such an important right. job, maybe we should be given the resources and the time to do it properly. So it's not that the people who are doing these jobs don't necessarily care about these jobs, right? Obviously, like anything else, I think we've talked about this before, the fact that the humans generally, we tend to have a need for competence. We need, we want to feel like we can affect the environment and we can feel that we have a skill set that is valuable and can contribute. People are obviously engaging in that and trying to, to make the best of the situation. Nonetheless, like you said, it's, we are not providing actual supports, these new essential services. Something that I think that's interesting is, do you think that we're going to see a cultural change where we're going to start valuing those kinds of services more? Um, you could argue that's one way to to basically help force 
um, a greater both economic valuing of these jobs and a cultural value, right? Are people now seeing the light sort of thing? Are their eyes being opened due to the situation? Do you get a sense that that's happening? I think it is, is happening with healthcare workers. I think a lot of people are celebrating, you know, our, our frontline workers in healthcare, which obviously, yes, that's, it, it, they should be celebrated. I think that it should be expanded to um, other occupations who are frontline as well. And I think with a, with a cultural shift, it could help enrich these occupations economically by, by forcing organizations to pay more of a premium or something. I'm not sure exactly how that would work. Um, it might have to happen through legislation or something and through a, a higher minimum wage. And But one, one other thing that I'm thinking that is, is probably happening already, but the, the, the wage of the job should match it, is that a lot of these, these essential services are being imbued with new meaning. So for instance, you have someone working a custodial job overnight who's, who's merely cleaning previously. And they, it was kind of a, a transactional job. I go in, I, I, I clean and, and get out. That person is now protecting society. They're the, the safeguard of people's well-being in that space. It is up to them to make sure that this place is sanitized fully and that vulnerable populations are, are protected, people who are, who are going in and out, right? Yeah. Um, the same thing could be said for um, food delivery people who were previously just delivering something that was entirely a convenience and you know, reserved for people who have disposable income. And, and they were probably thinking maybe these people are lazy. They don't feel like going out and getting their own food. But now you have people who are, are stuck with shelter-in-place orders who are too afraid to go outside because they are vulnerable and they need food. You know, I mean, grocery delivery is included in that probably at a more, at a more base level. Um, these occupations hold real value but they're not compensated as such currently. Yeah. And if the situation continues like this, and this is our new normal, as many people are describing it, the, the value of those occupations should catch up to their actual worth. And so before, before we were recording, you were talking about um, a practice, I think, called job evaluation, right? Yes. So in the interest of bringing in as much actual IO as we can into these little discussions, um, something that we've talked about in the podcast before is job analysis. And we bring it up all the time as being kind of the cornerstone of IO psychology, where job analysis is you you take a job and you study it and you break it down into all of its little component parts. What are the tasks you do? What are the skills that you need to do this job? What is the experience you need, etc.? Job evaluation often comes alongside job analysis, and it's basically a set of techniques that we use to try and take jobs and determine how much they're worth. And this is where the maybe we can have the discussion about what worth is, because in job evaluation, often it's worth in terms of money, how much we should be paying a person doing that job. And really what the point is, is to try and study the, the same, those same pieces that come from a job analysis and assign numbers to them, assign values to them, and say, now that we can have all of the jobs in the organization, usually on the same scale and the same set of information, we can evaluate them appropriately. We can use basically what's most common is usually a grading system. If you work at a company where you know you're a grade two A and you know grade two B gets paid a little bit more or a little bit less than you, ideally those distinctions have been made based on job evaluation. And those distinctions come from well, actually two B, uh, you know, has greater responsibilities in terms of supervision. Therefore, that allows us to justify, you know, basically the, the additional pay range we're giving to that position. Job evaluation is one of those things where it's almost like an unseen part of IO psychology. There's actually quite a bit of practitioner work. Uh, there's lots of companies out there that sell systems to try and do job evaluations in your organization. 
Um, but really, that's what it comes down to. You basically try to understand all the jobs in your organization or in a department. And ideally, what you end up is something that's a little bit fair, right? You end up with being able to to point to like your spreadsheet and say, well, we're paying this job more because of how it's distinguished from this other job. And we value X day more or less, right? It's It's a pretty straightforward idea, but I think it's one of those where it got called to mind because when I was studying, particularly for my comprehensive exams, where I was like studying everything in I was psychology ever, job evaluation comes up from the perspective of, yeah, what is it that you do on the job and what are the skills and, and, and basically education that you have on the job that make it worth paying more? It doesn't really talk about these these subtleties that we're facing when we talk about essential services right now, where it's a job that maybe doesn't look particularly high skill, um, but has a lot of value all of a sudden that's becoming even more salient due to the context of, that it's being done in. There's also the notion of danger pay, which is provided to certain occupations where you're, you know, you're inherently putting yourself in harm's way. And I mean, that might be something that in the near term could be added to occupations like this. An example that immediately comes to mind uh, is, I think, crab fishermen in Alaska. They make a lot of money because the occupation itself is very risky with terrible, unpredictable ocean conditions. Um, they go out there because they're they're compensated for the danger they're putting themselves in. It's kind of a similar situation with people who are on the front lines in in healthcare, um, sanitization, and and you know forced to actually be outside interacting with society. And we do take some of these things into account when we pay people. Another example: uh, people who work in remote places for long stints at a time. You know, people who work on oil rigs, right? They get paid very well in part because they're isolated from all other communities that they know for a very long period of time. Not necessarily doing super dangerous work in some ways, but we're also compensating them. Right? We're compensating them for the fact that you're going to be basically in a very unique situation. That's something that we're not doing right now. I mean, as far as I know, I have not heard of the introduction of danger pay or the introduction of anything that kind of tries to account for the context, um, at least monetarily, that people are doing these kind of mundane jobs in, right? Something like like grocery delivery, food delivery, people who are, are greeters, right? One of the concerns that I've seen a lot um, expressed on social media is that all the people who are now greeters who are have to kind of help enforce laws for wearing masks and things like that they're now they're going to be put in harm's way from people who might be disgruntled who don't want to wear masks right yeah i know as someone who worked food service before any of this stuff that happened people get very upset when you don't make their hamburger right and it can lead to physical altercations right there is an amount of physical danger that 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 person is being put in can you imagine now with all the stress all the additional context of what's going on in the world now Hold on, you're talking about a physical altercation that happened because someone didn't make their burger right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one of my managers was basically attacked by, uh, by a guy who was unhappy. We put pickles on his burger. Really? Uh, that's a thing that happened when I was working at McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't he didn't- hate pickles that much. Yeah, uh, it, and he didn't jump and like punch or anything, but he basically like threw stuff at her. Yeah. Uh, that's really? A, that's a thing that happens. Yeah. So, yeah. So, for example, right, that's not a job that you would think would be, you know, a dangerous job. Now, can you imagine someone who works like as a greeter, right, like a Walmart or whatever, and and now they're being yeah. forced to tell people, could you please put on your mask or you can't enter the store? That's I, I think that's a that's a physical risk that these people are being placed in. Again, not something we think about, not something that's necessarily part of the of the context of the job all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now that now that every single person is potentially dangerous, right? I mean service the service industry wasn't characterized that way previously and now it is exactly um with with the greeter example i wouldn't even classify them as greeters anymore but when, when you first brought it up i was like oh greeting is not essential service like you don't need to be greeted when you enter a store but you do need 
to like evaluate people to see if they're actually following the rules. And so it's right. almost more like a, like a security role rather than a greeting role. Yeah. And so I don't know if it's necessarily fair to put someone who was previously employed as a greeter in this new role without, you know, proper training or proper equipment or or the resources to do the job, right? What happens if that person says no? What could they possibly do, right? Uh it's 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 a really really interesting time because I think it's given us the opportunity to reevaluate a bunch of jobs and a bunch of occupations that we wouldn't get the opportunity to look at very closely before. All of a sudden, the people who work, you know, at the at the bakery that I go to, they're much more salient to me because I, they they are doing a job when my job has changed drastically, or maybe I'm not working anymore because I'm not allowed to go into my office, etc. All the people who are still working, all of a sudden, their positions become much more obvious to you because they're still doing the everyday thing that sure would changes, but they're still doing the job that they were doing before. And I think that kind of forces people to look more closely at that. And I wonder if people are having a reckoning and, and rethinking personally their perspectives on that stuff. And I think with the experience that we've had of seeing some of these these articles, like the, the New York Times article, at the very least, some of the media is exploring that as well. It's yeah, it's an it's an interesting concept, and I mean, I, I definitely individuals who are still working, like quote unquote, out in the world, are definitely more salient to me too. I'm wondering with the with the bakery example though, are you just spending more time at the bakery since COVID? <laughs> uh, no, I wish uh, we just we just have a, a, a like a local bakery that opened, and we really liked it, and then you know all the COVID stuff happened, and we have recently started going back, and I'm very happy. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy that they're open, but at the same time, it's one of those like, do I really need to have? you know, my whole wheat loaf or whatever. So do you think, so on the reverse of this, um, do you think that the the pandemic has actually revealed thought, things that we thought might've been essential before as actually not essential at all? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't even thought about that. I feel woefully underprepared now. <laughs> this is something that just came across, occurring across my mind when we were discussing this. Well, Nothing immediately comes to mind if we use the definition of essential services that you you started the episode with. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff that requ- that is required for society to function, right? Um, like police services, fire services, um, medical services. These are all equally, if if not more important now than they were before. I think there are certain practices and occupations that are structured a certain way that we thought they had to be that way and and don't have to be. I mean, like the, the obvious example is how this we're having this transition to virtual work and how office environments are not so common anymore or reduced capacity. And maybe we maybe we'll switch back because we haven't seen the long-term implications of that. And I I don't want to pivot to a, a whole virtual work discussion because this, this is a bit of a, a bit of a different topic, but I think it is calling into question some of the practices we thought that were essential or required, and now they're not so much. I think that's where I stand too. I can't think of a particular job, but I can think of responsibilities maybe that that we thought were like, oh, here's the thing that a manager does, right? A manager kind of keeps track of what the work people are doing and they kind of stay on yeah. them to make sure that like that responsibility seems much less like crucial to me now. And I wonder if that's going to carry over back to when we go to offices or if we ever do, frankly. Mm-hmm. The notion that you don't need to be on top of employees to make sure they're doing their work actually turns out if you give employees autonomy, people will you know will work a little bit later, walk around work around their kids' schedules or whatever to make sure they get their work done. Those kinds of things can see changes in responsibilities, but uh, but yeah, yeah, actual essential services like we defined at the beginning hasn't really changed much in my mind. Yeah, uh, I I can't think of how they would have changed either. I mean the the definition was pretty lean in the first place, right? Yes, I think um, so. Yeah, 
I think it's highlighted how essential internet is. I mean, it's already creeping towards being an essential service, um, not an occupation, but um, obviously people who work on the infrastructure to maintain the internet, to make sure it, it continues to run and hydro and electricity and things like that. Like those are obviously essential occupations that have to keep working, right? Yeah. But as we are being removed from offices and removed from public places and we can't interact as much, um, the internet and especially like voice and video calls are becoming more and more essential. Zoom has become like a household name, whereas previously we used it to, to work, but now it's being used for schools, it's being used for, for personal calls. So we're seeing that change for sure. And I think that the internet is definitely, um, if not already an essential service, is, is becoming, quickly becoming an essential service. Yeah. I think the fight for, for reclassifying the internet from something like basic cable to something that's a utility like water and electricity. Yeah. It has gained quite a bit of, of ground over the last couple of months. I think I think they've they've gotten a pretty good argument uh, in their favor seeing how important it's become to basically how everything uh, has been able to continue in some form or fashion. One thing that I was interesting is I saw, saw some people talking about and this is back on the side of essential services that you maybe didn't think about uh, were libraries becoming really essential services particularly for people of low income who don't necessarily have access to the internet or, or other yeah. source of, of resources at, at home again something I hadn't thought about right uh, when you think of your local library you think you know the, oh you go out there you check some books mostly kids go and stuff like that they're really important resources right there are lots of lots of community events happen in libraries they provide access to things like internet that sort of thing again it's it's forced me to rethink maybe the kinds of roles that I'm sure some other people already considered essential, but I think have become much more salient to those of us who don't interact with them on regularly. Yeah, libraries are a part of our, there's, there's a term that I think was semi-recently coined called social infrastructure. Mm-hmm. These are things that exist as part of our societies that encourage community interaction. And li- libraries are an example of that. I, I first heard about that in an episode of one of my favorite podcasts, 99% Invisible. Mm-hmm. I can we can we can link that in the show notes of that episode um, once we find it. But yeah, libraries are are not just places to take out books. People access the internet there uh, who don't have access to it at home. There, it, it's a place for clubs and gatherings, and uh, there are lots of like innovative uses of libraries that people wouldn't readily think about. Yeah, and it really highlights how much of a disadvantage people are at if they don't have the internet. Yes. As we're, we're talking about going back to school now with classes and how children who don't have access to laptops and internet from home and like, you know, solid connection are really at a disadvantage now. And it's, it's hard to, to argue how essential it is. So I guess as a takeaway, what are your final thoughts on the essential services discussion we've been having? Has, has there been anything in particular you, you think is kind of the essential point that's being made by, in part our situation really, um, which is interesting. It's something that's been entirely environmentally driven, right? It's everything around us that's driven us to this point. My takeaway is really that we need to reevaluate the value of a lot of these occupations that are absolutely essential in this time and, and will continue to be essential. I would love to to think that, you know, the economy and society are going to, you know, do the right thing and just elevate these occupations because it's it's the obvious right thing to do because many employees are putting themselves at risk here, but there needs to be some kind of a forcing function, I think, because uh, I, I think the press is doing a good job of, of raising concern about it. I think that's the first step um, that a, a lot of people who work in these, in these occupations don't have a strong voice and a unified voice. Right. Um, like, you know, cleaning, cleaning workers, for example, 
um, gig workers, delivery workers, they're not unionized. They don't have necessarily a very strong voice, a unified voice to be able to fight back and, and protect their interests. They're, they're really um, being put under harder conditions now than they were previously, and, and they're not getting elevated. So that, that's what needs to happen. Hopefully, I, I truly hope it does. Yeah. What about you? I think, I think my, my takeaway would be similar along those lines. I think what we have here is an opportunity to document and build up the ammunition to make that happen. Because I think it, we have been given, I mean, as awful as the situation is, it has allowed an opportunity for everybody to see exactly what the impact of these occupations are, right? It's much more salient, it's much more obvious to us. And I think we have the opportunity to really basically take stock of that. And when the argument needs to be made to why we should maybe have legislation or have some way of basically ensuring the minimum wage goes up or that danger pay is much easier to get in situations for that, you know, people that are facing these kinds of of circumstances where they have to go out and, and clean in potentially dangerous situations, those sort of things. We have the ammo now. We have that 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 information now. We're getting it right now, and hopefully we can continue to use it. Uh, because as far as I can tell, this might not be the last time we have a situation of this sort, right? Where we have something where a few occupations are going to become much more important um, due to what's happening in the world around us. So hopefully, and I'm sure it's being done already. I already know lots of our psychologists are doing COVID-related research doing lots of documentation as to what's happening, um, mm -hmm. it feeds into that argument. It feeds into what we should be doing to make these occupations much more valued. It does, yeah. And we may find that eventually many of our occupations are going to become pandemic-proof and design them to prepare for the situation when something like this does happen again. Because, you know, it, it likely will. It likely will, yeah. Well, on that, uh, a bit of a sour note, the notion that uh, the new normal might actually be the new normal, not something that just goes away. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, uh, even though it can sometimes be a little bit of a downer these last few episodes. Um, now that we're in the midst of a pandemic, if there are any occupations that you think are particularly essential that we didn't mention, or any occupations that we did think were essential and, and now are not, um, we'd love to hear your perspective and, and hear from you. You can reach out to us at mindyourworkpodcast at gmail.com or send us a tweet at mindyourworkio on Twitter. I'm Jose. I'm Nicholas. And we'll see you soon. I was going to say after that. Oh, you can always reach us. Yeah. If you, if, if you, if you, if yes. you also, um, snap in. <laughs> and if you, if, if you, <laughs> um,